Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies podcast listeners, Clarissa here. Today, Molly and I are bringing you the fabulous Michelle Shapiro. Michelle is an integrative functional registered dietitian from New York City who has helped over a thousand plus clients reverse their anxiety, resolve long-standing gut issues, and approach their weight lovingly. I first heard Michelle on Molly Carmel's podcast and knew we had to get her on our show. She is the host of Quiet the Diet podcast and aims to illuminate natural healing methods for listeners, as well as invite them to approach their weight in a body-neutral way. She clears up nutritional dogma and takes a strong role in the middle ground where she believes people can want to lose weight and have a positive relationship with food. She aims to bridge the gap between body positivity and intentional health changes. She and her staff dietitian, Nikki, see clients virtually in her practice. Today, we talk about why it's okay to want to be in a different body, why for some people, what they need to focus on is their inner foundation and address other health issues first how we as clinicians can talk appropriately to our clients about releasing weight, her thoughts on food addiction, her thoughts on all eating disorders being food addiction, how does she feel about the new weight loss drugs, why in doing real work, it takes time, and why when you work with trained professionals, there are no money-back guarantees. No infomercial healing here, listeners. Thank you for continuing to listen to our show. Help us grow our show so we can bring you even more great guests like Michelle by leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. All right. We are so excited to have Michelle Shapiro here on the Food Junkies podcast today. Thank you, Michelle, for being here. Chrissy and Molly, I'm so freaking excited to be here. I really mean that. I'm so excited. I've been waiting all week, month even. We've been planning this out. I know. I know. Well, like I said before, we were talking before this recording started is I heard you on Molly Carmel's podcast, What You're Craving. And I was like, who is this badass functional dietitian? And we need to talk to her. We need to know more about her. And I think so does our audience. So I'm really hoping if you would be open to sharing your personal story with Food and Body and why you decided to pursue this career professionally specifically becoming that, you know, kind of outsider, integrative, functional, registered dietitian. Absolutely. And I think so many of us who are healers, our our personal stories mirror the work that we do. So I love laying that foundation too. And I'm sure you both have that, you know, same experience and understanding. So I grew up always having occupied a larger body from the ages of around five to 18. And I grew up in Queens, New York, one of the most, actually the most diverse high school in the entire world at one point, which is a a really awesome thing for a lot of reasons. And so having occupied a larger body wasn't for me in a very diverse neighborhood of body, of race, of spirit, of 
everything was not as big of a deal as if I had grown up in a really homogenous place, but it still provided some boundaries for me. And so when I was going away to college, I kind of knew that. And I was going away to the University of Delaware, which was much more homogenous. And I realized that if I go away to school, people aren't going to know me for who I am. My weight could be an issue for people in ways of socializing, in ways of even jobs and relationships. And because there's this terror and and real thing that is weight stigma, I wanted to, in whatever way possible, give myself a leg up, essentially, when I was going away to college. So I went on, which I could not recommend any less, a very, very drastic weight loss journey. And that involved me losing huge trigger warning, issuing it, dropping it close to 100 pounds in about a three to four month period. Because I knew, again, going away to school, I was going to have to lose that weight. So I, I basically starved myself, went away to college. And when I was there, certainly received the societal benefits of thin privilege and people treated me instantly differently. And on the other hand, I was really sick for most of my college experience. I had really bad anxiety, gut issues, acid reflux, thyroid issues, I just felt like I became a chronically ill person. And it really only was until after college that I started to understand that that drastic weight loss really set my body into this state of fear and panic because my body was like, oh my gosh, what just happened to us? There was such a big change. And I know in our society, we view all weight loss as good. We're like, weight loss is a great thing. You got to lose weight. It'll make everything in your health better. For me, it was actually a trigger for a lot of the health issues that I would later encounter. And after I had this diagnosis of anxiety, I had all these new fancy diagnoses from a million different doctors is when I started to kind of dive into more the holistic or natural route to, first of all, just solving my kind of relationship with my body, anxiety, and health, and ultimately getting healthy. And that was through a naturopathic physician and through the work of functional medicine. And then ultimately why I became a functional dietitian is because I wanted people to be able to lose weight if they wanted to without harming the rest of their health. And I help people with anxiety and gut issues too. What a shocker. Absolutely. Well, like you said, we all kind of have this personal story that really drives what it is that we're doing. And if those were things that you encountered, right, then you know that they're real and you really want to show up and let somebody else know like, hey, I see you. I believe you, which I feel like so many of us go right to the doctor, to a dietitian, to a counselor or a coach even, and they don't believe us. So what I'm really curious about is, would you tell us a bit more about your practice, like how you work with clients and how that differs from working from like maybe from like my regular local dietitian, like who would be a good fit for working with you? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm just going to do a quick, if you don't mind, definition of the difference between a functional dietitian or kind of conventional dietitian, like the ones you would see. So when I think of something like a, let's, let's talk about functional medicine. Even you think of something like a thyroid condition. If you were to go to a conventional medicine doctor, he would give you for hypothyroidism, some pig thyroid hormone. And that would be in the form of what people would assume is like levothyroxine, synthroid, one of those medications and saying here, we're giving you thyroid hormone. Let me just give it to you from somewhere outside the body. A functional medicine doctor or functional dietitian would ask the question, why is your thyroid not functioning properly? So then what we would do is help the body's natural ability to produce thyroid hormone instead, get to the root and understanding of why did this happen in the first place? In functional nutrition and medicine, we don't believe that disease happens spontaneously. Of course, injury can happen spontaneously, but disease comes from a combination of a lot of different root cause 
root causes. And what our goal is, is to find out why things are happening in the first place. And a lot of that takes into account the person's actual story of their life too. It's not only just you walk into a doctor's office and they take a snapshot and say, here's what's going on with your thyroid now. We want to know what social factors influence that, what biological factors influence that. And really kind of the deal with functional nutrition is understanding that the whole of a person makes up where they're at now. And that's how we target it. So if someone was coming to me, I would really want to know their story in a lot of ways and understand how their story influences their current health and then put steps into place to shift their body back towards a state of health. And that could be through a lot of different means. That could be through nutritional supplements, changes in food. It could be the way of the posture with which we eat. It could be breath work before eating. It could be anything related to really those lifestyle habits or what I would call like a lifestyle deficiencies that have led that person into that state of dysregulation or, you know, sickness. I love that you're speaking our language because both Molly and I are biopsychosocial spiritual clinicians. And when Mm -hmm. it comes to addiction, you know, we don't operate out of that disease model at all. That that's, you know, that it does come from so many different factors and that it is important to explore those factors and, and work on healing those factors. So then the symptoms of addiction, you know, start to be less intense for that person. Can you tell us why it might be important for people to quiet the diet and quit pursuing weight loss as their primary goal instead, and instead focus on their inner foundation and address some of the other health issues first? How does someone do this groundwork? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the first piece of the question, because now you've given me now 14 different directions I can go in, Chrissy. That's the problem. That, is there so It's many what we do. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a juicy one. So first of all, when I say quiet the diet, which is the name of my podcast, what I mean by that is that I believe that each of us has kind of different voices that dictate our actions and behaviors. And it's almost like that movie Inside Out, that Pixar movie where you have like, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this probably on another podcast even. You guys are therapists, like, of course, you know. So I, I really believe in this internal family systems model, which is that we have like different components of our personality that we pick up from different parts of our lives and they kind of communicate with each other. The goal of Quiet the Diet is to help people to kind of decrease the heaviness or intensity of the voices that are not serving them and increase their most authentic voice essentially because and I'll give an example of this so when people engage in something like binge eating behaviors we often I often hear this kind of storyline that people tell themselves which is I'm sabotaging myself I'm 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 screwing myself over and I'm like no you're not no one intentionally sabotaged themselves like you want to do things to make yourself feel better so this voice that I often hear around binge eating, and you guys are going to be nodding your heads at this, but is that screw it voice, right? Which is like minutes, seconds before that binge, you hear, screw it. I can't do this. Screw it. I'm binging. What I'm more interested in is what are the 10 voices that are happening before screw it? And what kind of those voices I see as are like generally are something along the lines of, I feel really like sad today. I feel really crappy today. Another voice pops up and says, why don't you just eat something? It'll literally make you feel better. It'll actually correct that physical discomfort, which it does, which is why we can't judge anyone for binge eating. And then another voice comes in and says, no, you can't eat that. You're going to gain weight. And then it becomes this whole decision fatigue thing. And then our very protective voice comes up and says, screw it. Stop. Just eat it. Forget about it. What the screw it's actually doing is helping people to stop the pain and the noise. So quiet the diet for me means trying to minimize all of 
the voices that aren't really serving us or aren't ours. But we have to understand that those voices also are there for a reason. So we don't hate those voices and we can't quiet voices by telling them to be quiet. We actually have to listen to them for them to go away because they're like, I always give this example. They're kind of like little kids that really want our attention. So if we keep ignoring them, they'll, they'll scream louder and louder. So to actually quiet the noise, you actually need to listen to your body and listen to yourself. And then your whole real authentic self that serves you ends up coming to the surface and being that louder voice. I know that was one-tenth of your original question, by the way, but I ex- expanded it and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, never, never, never apologize for, you know explaining yourself and and really kind of talking about these things that you're passionate about and the way that you understand it. I'm a big believer that, you know, Clarissa and I often say very similar things, but I think sometimes our, you know, people we work with, our listeners, whomever, right? Sometimes they just need to hear it from somebody else in a slightly different way and it can mean the world of difference, right? So, So when we talk about instead of focusing on then like that weight loss piece and really looking at the root of these things and quieting these voices... Can you kind of talk about how you start to do that work? Like, how do I start to listen to these voices? How do I determine, oh, this is the voice that I've called the voice of sabotage, but really maybe it's a protector or can you kind of talk a bit about like how you work with your clients to do that work? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and bringing back, like you said, this original question, Molly, which is why don't we target weight loss by targeting weight loss? Why do we kind of have to side-eye weight loss a little bit, right? And one of the reasons is that weight loss is a very threatening act in a lot of ways. You're telling your body verbally, I'm going to be intentionally starving you now. See how you like it. You know, there's no way that our bodies are going to be like, this is sick. Like, I love this. Like, our bodies do not want to lose weight. That's not something, even though the end result of having weight lost might be a positive thing for people. It doesn't mean the process of weight loss is going to be safe or feel good. And what I have seen work best for clients who want to pursue weight loss is actually to create a body of safety and efficiency to do that, right? We want our metabolism running efficiently. Our thyroid itself is always listening to us. So again, if you're going to say to your thyroid, listen, you, I'm giving you nothing and you better run as fast as possible. Your thyroid's not going to work as efficiently as possible. Our body's listening to us and listening to those thoughts too. So again, if we have this diet voice coming in and it says, Hey, we're going to lose weight. You're going to get some reactive voices coming up as well, right? That's like, no, whoa, whoa. I really don't want to starve. I really don't want to starve. Hey, that's that kind of increases the urgency in the conversation. So when clients come to me for weight loss specifically, And this is one thing I actually want to speak into too, regarding a previous question, is that what I'm seeing in the nutrition world right now is a little bit of a division between kind of conventional dietitians and I would put functional dietitians in a different category almost, and kind of these health at every size, intuitive eating dietitians. And I know we're going to touch on this throughout the conversation, but I want to make it clear on this podcast that if people want to lose weight, I think it's okay to want to lose weight and I will help clients achieve weight loss goals. But we don't do that in a conventional way of let's count calories. Anything that's going to put that body into a state of non-safety is going to be an issue. The reason I just brought that up is because I know a listener, at least one listener is going to say, oh, she's going to tell me I can't lose weight too. You know, oh, I really want to lose weight now. Oh, it's not safe. Dieting is bad. Weight loss is bad. I don't believe that weight loss is bad. I don't actually believe dieting itself is bad. And I can talk more to that, but what we don't do is increase the urgency with these voices and say, hey, where did you lose weight right now? I also give the example, if you walked into a doctor's office and said to the doctor, like, I really want to, uh, you know, I want to fix this part of my health. And the doctor's like, oh my God, I can't believe that's going on with you. 
it wouldn't make you feel good, right? It wouldn't regulate your nervous system very well. So we need to talk to ourselves in the same way. And how I kind of have clients first start to change the conversation is let's address the urgency. Let's notice what it feels like from a somatic level inside of our bodies when we talk about weight loss. So in those sessions with clients, I'm going to be first, I'm really, I'm like a little detective. I'm noticing every inch of even, you know, what their body is telling me in those conversations. Are they pulling back when we talk about carbs? Are they pushing forward when we're learning about something new? So really listening to what our bodies are telling us and feeling what our bodies are telling us when we approach these conversations. And then I would just say, just listen to all the voices to start with. I make, I have my clients literally take a piece of paper and divide it into five parts and write down when each voice comes up. And we really get to know these voices too. So I would say the first step in, do I want to lose weight is just listening, reflecting, and feeling what the conversation about around weight loss you know, feels like inside of your body? Does it make your chest tighten? Does it make your stomach tighten? What does that look like for you? That's a really great question. I was recently on Instagram and I saw somebody else had posted something to the effect of like, what shifts for you when you talk about weight loss as a preference Mm. versus, right? Versus this like cultural societal, right? Like whether it be a medical professional saying you need to lose weight for this medical procedure to happen or for your health, quote unquote health. Or is it, you know, and and instead of listening to the noise around you, like you were saying, like this homogenous culture, wherever it is that you're living, is it like the societal pressure? Or if you stood up and said, like, it's my preference to be in a smaller body or to lose weight, right? Like, however, does something shift? Like, does that even land for you anymore? And if so, you know, how would that approach be different? And I think you're really asking that same question in a really, really neat way. I think so too. And Molly, even when you just said that, I felt my own body shifting when you said, right, Christy's putting the hand over the heart. Exactly. Like even just thinking about how other people interact with us. And I think also if a doctor says that to you, you need to lose weight. I almost want you to picture like there's a little you in your head that has a megaphone and is screaming that at you all day long. How would that influence how you physically feel, right? That would really impact my health. And that's what's happening is we're having those conversations. What my concern is around weight loss kind of on a nutritional landscape and and in the therapy world for sure is that there's kind of this new voice that's come up for people and it's, you shouldn't want to lose weight because that's going to give you an eating disorder and that's going to make you feel bad. And that is still not an authentic voice to the person, right? And so I what I hear this new thing that's happening in the past two to three years, really in the last year is people coming to me and saying, I know I shouldn't want to lose weight. I I go, who says who, who said that to you? That's not you. And you can see even again, I loved it, Molly, when you said it, the voice changes, you can hear, is it coming from outside or inside those voices? Exactly. And that's, you know, that's one of our questions for you is, you know, is it okay to want a different body, especially when we know these consequences, not only of um, occupying a larger body, but then like you were saying, almost like these, the, the haze people, or even like some of the stronger voices in the eating disorder world that are like anti-diet and you shouldn't want to lose weight. And there's no research that even shows, you know, being at a heavier weight, is unhealthy, you know, like there are, there are risk factors, but what is the actual risk, right? So there's a lot of noise, like it feels shaming from like all of these sides and it can Mm. be really hard to weave through the noise. You kind of talk us through that. Like what, what can we do? Yeah. And I'll, I'll lay the landscape for us even thicker too, which is that there has been extremely real weight stigma that is dangerous to people's health. And it is absolutely 
like I, I the only way I can, it's real, right? It's not, this is not a made up thing. This is a very real thing that has happened. People have less likelihood of getting jobs. People have less likelihood of in, in having joy in areas of life, not because of the actual weight, but because of the stigma around the weight, right? And as a result of that, there's been a real emotional and what I would call like almost a knee jerk reaction from a bunch of really empathetic and amazing people who said, this is horrible. And what that's kind of happened is I think it's gone. uh, It's been too strong of a reaction. Some coming from an emotional state where now we're starting to question science. That's pretty clear in my head around not, not even weight necessarily, but pursuing health goals specifically and health overall, you still have to be able to do that just because chronic illness rates in all areas are going up. Take weight out of the puzzle. We're really sick right now. Our, our life expectancy in the United States is lower than any like similar comparable nation. It's it's very, it's a really big deal and it's, and it's really happening. But again, focusing on weight isn't necessarily going to help people do that either. So I think there's always a middle ground, right? We have to find what the middle ground is and we have to listen to, accept, but also challenge when something doesn't, I'm going to say the same thing, sit right with us. When I hear people saying like, you're perfect at every size, what you eat doesn't matter. Food is not medicine, all these things. It's like, that's not a voice I would even use. I would, I would talk just like you're either any of the three of us are talking like, yeah, I probably should lose some weight. I'd love to find out how that's how I would talk. You know, I don't know if it's like the New Yorker in me, but like, I would never be like, you're beautiful and wonderful. Like, it's not how I speak. So I think that's also like wondering and getting curious about like how these messages sit with you and if they're real, right? Like we're talking about actual people's health and lives. So it's nice to say 98% of diets fail. That doesn't mean anything to me at all. And it's nice to throw these statistics out. But when it comes to real people's lives, they want the answers just like everyone else. And I can tell you even having, you know, had occupied a hundred pound plus heavier body, like my knees feel it. Like there's very physical things going on. Like beside the fact that on a biochemical level, you have your insulin receptors and all this other stuff going on. It's real for people. And it's real that people want to lose weight. So I think first, when you hear that real voice, that's yours, it might sound really quiet and be like, I would like to lose weight. And then you can be like, wait, speak up. I want to hear you again. So I think that's like, oh, I want to hear that one. You just know when it's you, right? Like, you know how you speak, you know how you think, and it'll feel like coming home a little bit when you hear that voice. So I would say first, acknowledge those other voices. Don't try to shut them down. Acknowledge the other voices and amplify your own voice is the starting point with weight loss. And then which direction you go, funny enough, doesn't matter as much as long as you're listening to yourself along the way, which is 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 a weird thing to say. But I think many approaches would work for people. Of course, I believe in highly specified and individualized nutrition care. So I believe everyone's body is totally different. But when you got the game right of listening to yourself along the way, things are going to work better and easier for you. Any mm-hmm. weight loss strategy you're using. Yeah. And I think we, that actually brings up some other questions for me in terms of when you are working with clients who are struggling with body image, body acceptance, and they probably are at a set point that is probably somewhat home for their body because we do work at that Mm -hmm. intersection of eating disorder and food addiction. Is there a movement? Is it like body neutrality? Is it, you know, body positivity? Is there something that you would recommend for that person who, you know, maybe struggles with a bit of eating disorder or some food addiction and still wants to lose weight, but that might not actually be the best decision for them, but they need to come to that acceptance, which is so challenging. 
Yeah, it is. It's really hard. And I hate to be the person who tells people that they can't right now. So what I think has been really fun for me in my practice is just that the the beauty of functional nutrition is you can work with people wherever they are. And what I really notice, and I'm sure you guys notice, is that in many of my clients who have eating disorders or disordered eating behaviors, there's quite a lot physically going on with them as well. So we can actually confuse and and get miscommunication between our body and our brain just from a gut condition. Parasites, for instance, can make us crave carbs more. So there's all these really interesting things that if there's any damage going on in our body, we can misconstrue that as food cravings, food issues, and things like that. So what I would say is let's get really focused and interested on getting our feeling good health-wise. And there's always many ways we can go, many different directions. And if you're just focusing on energy or sleep, the amazing thing about our nervous system is that it really learns by example. So that means if we can prove to our nervous system that we're safe in one area, our nervous system can let up a little bit and not stay in that sympathetic state so much. So I think for people creating and finding safety and physical health in whatever way possible or acceptance and where your body is and exploring and curiosity around physical health is a good direction to go because weight loss is generally kind of the side effect of the other things. And what I don't mean is when I hear functional medicine doctors saying, oh, when you balance your hormones, the weight will just naturally fall off. Like literally it won't. And that's absolutely not true. But what I mean is, again, if your body's in a state of real threat and lack of safety and fear, you're not going to be successful in that weight loss state. And that is when it becomes actually dangerous. And we have to put, we have to put bodily safety probably at the top of all of our priority lists. And I guess the two reasons that people ever make a change is they have enough education to make a change or they have enough discomfort to make a change. So I would say that explore kind of where you're at on both, but I would say mostly it's because we do things actually to feel better in the moment because we feel like crap. So I, I totally understand that. And, and just applying that curiosity to your physical self um, and what's going on with you, I think will, is illuminating for people because they'll say, wow, I really feel like crap all the time. I thought I was feeling normal and this whole thing was just in my head, but there's a, a lot else involved in it too. I love that because we constantly are reminding um, the clients that we work with to lead with curiosity mm. rather than you know decisiveness or punitive actions. And this is so hard when we work at that intersection of, you know, eating disorders and food addiction with the diet culture and, you know, all this messaging that's out there. But specifically, even just when we work with individuals, you know, you already spoke to that bio-individuality. We know that it takes a skilled clinician, someone who understands that eating disorders and food addiction can fall on a spectrum. Definitely, there's some comorbidities, but that, you know, we really, when that person comes to see us, we need to determine, as our colleague David Wiss says, the signal from the noise in order to, oh, I love you. And he's badass too, right? Yeah. And an RD. Hello. Amazing. (laughs) So what I'm wondering is, what are your thoughts on food addiction? Because there is a lot of individuals and, you know, obviously it's not a diagnosis yet. Molly and I are working toward like on the team on the International Classification of Diseases, putting proposal for forward. But with it not being diagnosable, you know, disease at this point, what are your thoughts on it? I have a complicated 
has that, can I just make anything simple and fun? No, it has to be a complicated answer, right? I'm so sorry. So it's so annoying. I think food by nature can be absolutely addictive. And I believe that the foods that we have are addictive and have the capacity to be addictive. I also believe that we are very disintegrated from our mind and our body at this point, which paves the way for us to need more reward system dings. We need more serotonin. We need more of those things. So I would say that the kind of American food landscape combined with the extreme amount of stress, it's almost like it's a uniquely Western problem. I actually, it's, which is, but I think people, I would say, I would, I think people experience symptoms of it for sure. And I, and I believe that it's exacerbated by the environment we live in. And I believe that you're both of your model and approaches would be extremely helpful and supportive to help people with that. My complication, that nuance with it, which I know you guys have encountered, is obviously that how do we know which foods would be classified as foods that you have to like not have? Like, you know, I OA and the kind of gray sheet model for me, it was always a little bit complicated because it doesn't, it can't take into that like bio-individuality again. So like while one food might be particularly addictive for some people, there's some foods that are addictive for all. So it might not be for others. So I think that it's, again, just this individuality piece, but um, certainly food has addictive properties and certainly we're in a place where we're very vulnerable to addiction. So yes, I, I believe in that way, it certainly exists at the bare minimum. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Food Junkie listeners. Have you read the book, Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction yet? It all starts there. This is the book with the basic theory and clinical knowledge of food addiction. Read this book first to get the basics. Our Food Junkies podcast jumps off from the book and is the ongoing breathing version, ever-growing and ever-expanding. Our podcast introduces you to all the issues of food addiction and the who's who of food addiction today. And if we at the Food Junkies podcast have inspired you to action, either to quit sugar or some other triggering foods or behavior, and you need some extra support, then please join the free Facebook group, I'm Sweet Enough Sugar Free for Life. There you will find a community of people who come from all parts of the spectrum, from the new and just starting out, to the long timers who call themselves food addicts in recovery, to counselors ready to give back and help you. The Facebook group even offers free support Zoom groups. Basically, it's a great online living resource of food addiction to help you stay sugar free for life. So please, Join us. Yeah, and I think you just nailed it because we certainly don't feel that you could, any universal food plan anyone would ever try to do would be just harming people rather than helping people. And, you know, when we talk to those who are really doing the research in food addiction right now, it's not all foods, it's ultra processed foods that are Mm -hmm. hyper palatable, that have that combination of salt, sugar, fat, you know, that can't be found in nature, replicated. And really it has drug-like do... effects. That's exactly. The, that's the issue. Exactly. It, it, it's attaching to the opioid receptors. We have huge issues with it. I also want to say this is so fascinating. I recently on my podcast had an Ayurvedic medical doctor on, and she's so cool because she's actually a, both a, a medical doctor and she practices Ayurveda and is a certified in Ayurveda, but she only really practices that. But we were talking about intuitive eating and talking about this idea that all foods fit, which is kind of a more like extremist version of intuitive eating, which we know intuitive eating has incredible merit and is not, oh, you can eat whatever you want. That's not intuitive eating at all. But this idea that all foods fit, which is something I see all the time, I was trying to like rectify all foods fit 
through an Eastern lens and it just like doesn't work because she's like, no, like there's laws of nature and there's laws of food. And like, the, I wouldn't, she doesn't consider the foods that we find in America that are hyper palatable to be food in the first place. So she's like, how could it fit? It doesn't fit because it's not, it's, it's a food like commodity, you know? And it was just a very interesting thing that all of these conversations are only happening in a very Western lens because we have unique issues also because of our extreme levels of stress in a specific way combined with these food commodities that don't really exist in many other places. So it's very, it's a very weird conversation, but it's completely necessary to have therapists like you for this reason, because it's a real problem that is facing so many of us because of that. I just got all excited and I started to wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on how these different camps of, you know, diets become Mm -hmm. like the carnivores versus the vegans and, you know, the vegetarians and Like, why is it so heightened and so angry and so, like, non-accepting of all things? I just don't understand why that exists. This is an amazing question. And what I, I think about this all the time. I was vegan for over 10 years, by the way. That was part of my eating disorder was how do I tell people that I'm not eating? Oh, I can't eat anything here. I'm vegan. So I am also the type of person who's very, like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it to a point where it makes me sick just because I'm going to prove to myself I can do it really hard. So that I was just vegan for over 10 years for that reason. There's a couple, there's an identity piece of it for people. So they feel like they're part of a community and then it becomes a protective part of a community. I would also say that in many of these communities, there's nutrient deficiencies that can lead to decision-making and rage issues. That would be part of you know, maybe the problem, and I'm joking when I said it, but kind of not, but there's a huge, behind all of these things, there's huge political agenda. There's huge lobbying. There's huge things. You got PETA, you got these different groups. And then when it comes to something like, and when I'm speaking really about veganism or diet companies, when it comes to something like carnivore, and this is really interesting, if I'm a functional dietitian, I can tell you there are certain clients of mine who could benefit from a carnivore diet for a short period of time, Okay. The problem is like when you're a dietitian or a doctor who has seen it work, you are like, oh my God, like I reversed this person had freaking, it could be something like a really serious condition. And I reversed it with this, you know, implementation. Oh my God. And I think people get overzealous and excited about these things. And then it turns into something like totally different. And it's really funny because I have in season two, I have a podcast episode coming out with two of one of the early kind of promoters of the paleo diet, they were like hardcore and neither of them really eat paleo anymore. And they were like, it just like by the, it's like 15 years later. And it's like people, are, it's still trickled down where now you have like gym bros who are like, you gotta eat paleo. I'm like, guys, the road who, the people who wrote the book don't even do this anymore. You're like, propo- you're proponents of something. It's it's the identity aspect. It beco- I am paleo, I am carnivore. It becomes that piece of it. And then people don't wanna leave the community. And then there's also this huge political aspect to it with food companies being and marketing budgets involved and literally political like lobbying issues too. And it always amazes me that to me, it seems so rationally irrational that we should eat the exact same thing every day and only eat those things for the rest of our life. And that is, you know, the hill I'm going to die on. But I absolutely understand where you're coming from. So when you are looking at working with clients, is it more about a balanced approach? Because I also do see, obviously, you know, in our food addiction field, there's definitely some harmful messaging, which is like, you know, grains are 
addictive and fruit is addictive because it has sweet taste. Like that messaging is out there. And I know that separates us from the conversation we would be able to have with the eating disorder world. And obviously our goal is to find a way to be able to sit at a table and have that conversation with eating disorder professionals and food addiction professionals. But I don't think we can have those conversations until we drop some of the dogma. Yeah, the dogma. And can I just be cruel for a second and say the ego around it too? Yes. You know, like, can can we say it together? I, do you guys know the the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is like basically, it was these two psychologists who formed this idea. It's like competency over confidence, essentially. So when you're like first a practitioner, you're like, I've got all the answers. I know exactly. We're, and like in the nutrition world, we were like, it's 1600 calories a day and we're doing this and we're, people are going to fill out food journals. And you're like starting like that with you guys. It was like, what, you know, whatever talk therapy, you were like CBT, this is it. Like, this is the only one, right? What, at, over time, what you'll learn as a dietitian or a therapist or in any practice is like, the more, you know, the less, you know, right. Cause I could have two clients. One of them could be eating grains and tolerating it amazingly. And another client can be eating it and and it's it's causing huge cravings for them or huge gut issues. It is so individualized. And I have to say, generally, when people are so gung-ho about one approach, I just don't think that they have the experience or that they're listening. And I really have to say that because I truly believe there are times even... And again, like as you can tell, I'm not a huge proponent of a vegan diet because I do believe it's very challenging to get all the nutrients necessary in a vegan diet. But there are times when my clients could be like, from an an Ayurvedic Eastern perspective, overheating or something. And I'm like, Ooh, we need some cooling veggies for the next couple of days. It so depends on the, the function of the body. And at the same time, what that exact person is going through at that moment, it really, really depends on that. And to have that fine tooth comb, you also really have to understand the intricacies of our digestive system, the intricacies of how each part of our body is connected. And that takes, I think the delicate hand of a functional dietitian along with a therapy team, not just one or the other. So if you have therapists who are also saying grains are bad for you, I'm like, I don't know, dude, like, you know, I've been in this game a while. Like there's definitely times where grains are awesome. Like it's definitely, there is really nothing black and white about nutrition, except for the fact that hyperpalatable foods probably don't work with most people. That's pretty, we're good there. I think we got that part down packed, but intuitive eating professionals do not believe that by the way, generally. So it's, I feel that as a functional dietitian, but I do believe it's so variable. And I will see with my clients again in these sessions, and especially like during the kind of the process of working with me is is really this one where I'm doing a lot of this detective work and I'm trying to draw the puzzle of someone's life really well. And I'll do in my initial consultation, I'm wondering again, what, like, how are you sitting while you're eating? I'm wondering like, what is the exact feeling you feel? How does your heart rate feel after you consume this food? I'm looking for all those biological cues to understand exactly how their body's reacting to different things. And then I can put into place that plan, understanding the puzzle of their whole health, because people do not understand how very, very unique we are. And that could be from mental or physical reasons that we're so unique. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering if just all this conversation about food, because, you know, obviously our listeners love to talk about it and listen about it and learn about it. And I'm wondering, we often hear about fiber too. And it, mm. they, again, some very polarizing opinions, team starve or team feed, you know, again, I probably say somewhere in the middle, but, and definitely bio-individual, but do you have any insight into, or feelings? about that fiber. I, God, do I have so many feelings about fiber? I do. So 
you're asking the right person. I have so many feelings about fiber. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the example of fiber actually to kind of draw a bigger example of what's what's really important, which is understanding the environment with what the food is going into. All right. So fiber is something that is can add bulk to your digestion. It can make you work those muscles of your digestion, which is really good, right? We like, we love these things. We, we it helps us to go to the bathroom. It helps to increase the motility. All these things that, you know, the migrating motor complex stimulates it, all these things that we we like fiber for, right? But if you're dumping fiber into a body that is already not processing food well and is slowed down and fiber is delaying gastric emptying, Fiber is going to exacerbate the issue. No food matters without the context of what the heck is going on in your body. So that means for one person, fiber can help you go to the bathroom. And for one person, fiber can make you more constipated. So it's it really depends on where your body is now. Same thing I say, you know, I like having clients drink lemon water in the morning to help improve stomach acid. So this is just a little fact, which is that a majority of people who suffer from acid reflux actually suffer from too little stomach acid. We used to think it was too much. And that's why we did all these PPIs. And now all the studies are coming out about these PPI drugs. They're like, oh my God, they're so dangerous, all this stuff, right? So when a client, but functional medicine doctors will say, here, I'll give you more acid then. we You take acid pills, literally, when you have acid reflux. That's what functional medicine doctors will do. But if someone's already has acid reflux, you can't just give them more acid. It's like throwing fuel on a fire that's already burning, right? So there's this delicate... It's all about timing and environment. That's what's so important. So there's a, there is literally a place where fiber can cure constipation or it can absolutely increase constipation. And you have to know where your body's at. That also takes some testing, honestly, Chrissy, like you just have to kind of play with your body a little bit and see like, how are we doing with this? Well, that didn't work that well. And you can keep a little bit of like a, my colleague, Andrea Nakayami calls it a food mood poop journal to see how does this food influence my, my, you know, how I feel my mood, and how does it influence my digestion? And and you you can clearly see and draw some lines between how that food's impacting you by doing that too. Yeah, this has been, it's been such a great conversation so far. And my mind is like pinging all over the place. You know, I'm thinking about like, there's the meme out there that says like, you know, like anytime I try to go for a run because I'm like trying to lose weight, my like European genetics kick in and say like, don't worry, we'll, we'll keep you safe, you know, until the whoever stops chasing you, right? So then the body hangs on to weight and, and thinking about the clients that we have that do maybe fall into the anorexia with bulimia or bulimia, you know, place where maybe they're, they're doing exercise, you know, there's some exercise addiction and they continue to gain weight. And meanwhile, you're trying to say like, this may be like information that your body is trying to put weight on for a very good reason, you know, all of those things. And then also thinking about you know, you saying like these stressors, like there's something so unique about Western culture where, you know, we do have these issues with whether it be addiction in general, you know, yeah. these different stressors, the hyperpalatable foods, whatever it might be that doesn't exist maybe in some other cultures. And, and so then I think about, there was this gentleman, his name is Michael Eastern. He wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis. And he talks about like how so it. much of, yeah, oh, yeah. it's a wonderful, it's awesome. yes, it's awesome. so yeah. much of what we, we do, like we create so much of what we're going through and and how does that then contribute? So thinking about how do we take in a, a like inventory of what it is that's happening in our daily lives or even just a bit, you know, like we think about these circles around us, like in our life, in our home, and then like at our work at, with our friends, whatever it might be. And how do we bring our central nervous system back into like a more parasympathetic state so we can rest and digest and all of these things. It's just, again, I'm pinging all over the place. And I was thinking too, when you were saying like, 
you know, it's such a 180 degree difference with so many of these, like everybody's saying the same things with such rigidity that as a mental health professional, literally as a licensed mental health counselor, I get so worried for these professionals uh, and not, maybe not even like for the professionals themselves because they seem to be living like their best lives, which is fine. But then the people that they're influencing with these very rigid ideas, right? Where there's no flexibility and we're only, you know, are only looking for confirmation bias. And so it's like, it's this way and this way only either because it's like something that worked for them, like you were saying, or like they cured, quote unquote, cured somebody or or helped somebody with another way. And and so like, this is the only way. And, And I just keep thinking about like, we are flexible or maybe not we are flexible, but we are not built to be rigid in like uh, animals, right? Like we have decision fatigue, we have palate fatigue, like we have all of these kind of like internal things built into us so that we would move on from one place to go find food in another place so that we would get, you know, like this array of nutrition and um, minerals and vitamins into our bodies and yeah. So it's just been an amazing conversation. I love so much where this is going. We definitely, and this is where I would love to hear your opinion. We definitely have, you know, colleagues in the food addiction world who believe that all eating disorders and disordered eating is food addiction. And we certainly don't believe that like as mental health and addiction professionals, we totally, you know, the two of us and and Vera as well, all the (laughs) co-hosts of this podcast. Right. But we're just wondering like, what, how can we show up and, and, what can we say to these colleagues or to to anybody who's even been maybe infected with this message? How can we help educate them about like how dangerous that message could be? We, oh God, now you've given me like 45,000 thoughts too. Okay, Molly. Yes. I freaking love everything you said. I think the first thing we have to talk about too is the danger of divisiveness and the danger to the only person I care about, which is the people consuming the information. I don't, I don't, right. The reason you want to educate practitioners is for the people listening to this podcast. It's not to, it's not for the sake of the practitioners, like you said, living their best lives in Cabo or they're on vacation, you know, living their best lives, spreading whatever messages. I don't, it's for me, the divisiveness is extremely dangerous and extremely scary. And I think just speaking into the nutritional world to start with first people are, I think, really don't know what the heck to do in the conventional nutrition world because people are having these huge gut issues, these huge addiction issues. And they're kind of, this we're kind of in the wild west a little bit. I don't want the, the client or listener to feel nervous about that. But I think for some practitioners, if you don't have the tools for healing, which is the goal that all three of us have, and I'm sure Vera has too, you can feel really isolated and that can kind of make people double down. I don't believe that the exclusively having the tools of what I learned in my RD degree would be sufficient for me to help people heal on a functional level. So that would have left me feeling really scared. And that would have left me feeling like, why the, I just invested like 200 grand in this education. Like, where's that going? You know, so I think that therapists might feel that way too, because the growth of not only physical conditions, but mental health conditions is so rapid. And I think people are sometimes just doubling down on what they've learned because they're, they want to help and they, they don't know or believe that healing is possible. And the important thing about that Western Eastern model is that our kind of Western medical model believes that anxiety or depression are diagnoses. I would view them as symptoms of something that's going on. So if you are within that Western way of thinking, you're probably 
stuck within a smaller set of tools. When you can look at the intersection of, like you said, someone's spirit and mind and body and physicality and pull those things together, the tools become huge and expansive. Like there's a million tools I can use with clients when you can access also 10,000 years of traditional, you know, ancient healing modalities. Like we have, we have loads to learn. And I certainly feel like I have so much even more to learn. But I think the problem is that we're within this model that the body is broken and cannot be fixed, right? And there's this idea that it's almost like when I got diagnosed with anxiety, they were like, oh, now you're just, that's on your medical record forever. You have panic disorder. And I was like, it just came up one day and then just stays with you. Like there's nothing, there's nothing else to it. So I think that the issue is that people are viewing this as you have a diagnosis, you are a diagnosis and you are broken. I mean, if you want my sassy answer, Molly, of what I would say to someone, I would say, how is that working for your clients? Is that working for you? Because I can't see a world in which people are slapping diagnoses on people as being healing modalities when you're not applying that curiosity. So I would say in my most sassy way, like, is that working for you? Like, is it helping your clients? Because I can't, there's no therapeutic practice, especially you as licensed mental health care professionals, that applying curiosity and compassion does not take you in an individualized way. Curiosity always takes you on a very intersectional and individualized journey. So that would be my answer. Also, I just would say, I would arm clients with saying, when you hear this is the way, this is the way, you know, that's like sales, marketing, one-on-one kind of messaging. You know, I never say in my, there's nothing in my messaging that's like, I will feel your gut. Like, I'm like, we will sit in an emotional conversation and I will stay in that space with you and we will find something about your past that's important. You know, like that's that's the most I can promise someone. And I think when people are making those empty promises, I would just shield your listeners to know that there is no one way. I know every single person that you work with, even if it's on the same condition, has a different response to the treatment. So you have to kind of play and see what actually works with people. So those are my non-sassy answers and sassy answers to what I would say to people. How's that working for you? I said to my clients all the time too. I'm like, how's not drinking water working for us? They're like, bad. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Let's drink some water. How do we do that? You know, exactly. So you're pretty much saying you don't offer a money back guarantee. Exactly. You don't heal me. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I'm like, right. I'm like, you're so freaking right. Cause I'm so like, we're just going to have to sit and we're just going to have to see. And I, from a discovery call or initial, you know, I have clients also who come to me for weight loss and I'm like, I'm honoring. And I say it at the end of every session, I'm like, I am honoring. You're wanting to lose weight. I'm validating it. It is real. Will you give me consent to focus on the fact that you're having diarrhea 15 times a day? Like, can, are we good to do that? But it has to be on their terms. What I would also say to both of you is, Sometimes people have to learn for themselves that it's not the right time for weight loss or it's not the right time to pursue a goal in that way. And it's it's just something that you have to kind of trust yourself and your practitioner enough to experiment and be safe together. And then you can come back and say, how are we, how was that great? Or it wasn't that great, right? Like maybe it wasn't that great. Maybe it's not my time to do that. But I think that telling people they can't do something can feel very limiting. And especially in this weight loss world, when we're constantly hearing like, you can't lose weight. It's going to cause an eating disorder if you try to lose weight. And it's going to like, and you guys know that eating disorders and food addiction are so multifactorial. It's not like one thing is going to cause an eating disorder immediately, you know? So it's, it's just knowing that each person is whole and has so many components to them too. But Michelle, I can lose weight because there's Ozempic and there's GLP medications. Mm-hmm. Can we, I have to tell you, we talk a little bit about that? We really you feel? 
You know, this is a really good question because I'm going to be middle on this too. I think there's a world in which those medications do help people lose weight. And I don't see an issue with that. You know, some, but I will tell you, I've also seen cases where it doesn't work. So I think the Hayes approach to Ozempic would be something like, you, you don't need to lose weight in the first place, first of all. Second of all, you're doing something that's drastic to your body to alter it. I think a functional dietitian would be like, cool, you're, or a functional medicine doctor, not dietitian. We wouldn't say that, but we'd be like, cool, you're losing weight and doing it. That's great. That's the thing you want to do. I'm somewhere in the middle where it's like, is it a tool in the toolbox? Do we want to look at that? Is insulin resistance a mega issue for chronic illness for people? Yes. Inflammation's at the root of many of the chronic illnesses we see. Elevated insulin is a, a major root cause of inflammation for people. It's a problem. But I have to say this. People come to me when they not only want to lose weight, but when they're chronically ill. So I have people who are really chronically ill. I have not nailed this down yet. So I'm just telling you guys this first, but all of my clients who have been put on Ozempic because of their complicated autoimmune conditions have not only not lost weight, but drastically gained weight while on it. And I have never seen anything like this before because I'm like, yeah, if you're working with your functional medicine doctor and they're saying, you know, semaglutide and GLP-1 medications have been around a very long time and functional medicine doctors have been using them for a very long time. They've been popularized recently, but they've been used for a while. So I've been, these, the peptide injections also, like this has like been a thing in, in our world, but I, after seeing so, I mean, it could have been maybe eight of my clients had the same exact reaction to it. So I would say, again, it's very individualized, but why would we rule out tools in the toolbox? And and for them, it certainly wasn't worth it. So there's definitely a world where it's not worth it too. But I, I would say that there's a, it's it's a middle ground thing for me, but you have to see like, is if insulin resistance is your main issue and you have an uncomplicated medical history otherwise, I don't know, I'm in between, you know, it's not gonna change your, food addiction or your eating disorder or anything like that, certainly you would need the support of, of you both and, and Vera to do that. But I don't know. I, I don't leave tools out of the toolbox. Why not? If that was an issue for someone, you know? I think it's like you were saying though, it's that curiosity. It's that willingness yeah. to be curious and have a tolerance for this may or may not work. Like we just, and, and what does even work mean, right? And the, like exploring it a bit further instead of fear mongering of like, don't take this medication. It's got all of these terrible side effects and blah, 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 whatever. Yeah, it's so weird to me. Yeah. It is, it's super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Is, Go ahead. Molly, can I say, well, yeah. yeah, the one yeah. thing I want to add is like, sometimes I feel like people are just pulling stuff out of there. You know what? Cause I'm like, now I'm seeing like, oh, if you don't, if you take these medications, you could be sacrificing a diabetic, not getting them. I'm like, there's like a million diabetes medications. And also like, if a drug company wants to do a supply and demand thing to force their price up, that's like a drug company. Like, don't worry about the drug companies being able to produce something. And there's many other diabetic drugs that are available. The, the supply and demand thing's not real. Like, they're creating the supply and demand thing. Like, and so it's like, I almost feel like that wasn't, that was the weirdest argument I've seen for it, for not taking it for people. And I'm just like, why should anyone feel shame about taking a medication that could help them? Like we're in a food landscape that is unheard of. Our rates of chronic illness are unheard of. We might need what we would call in like functional nutrition, sometimes like a sledgehammer approach. Like sometimes you have to do something drastic because our level of illness is very drastic in this country. So it's like, we are, it's like we, many of us are not even going to the bathroom once a day. Like if you were in many Eastern countries, they'd be like, you are sick. Like this is like, you are like really sick. The level of illness we accept here is very high. So sometimes we need drastic measures and medication is very forceful, but there's a place for it. Like I'm not, I'm integrative. I believe in Eastern and Western approaches. And like, it's just such a weird argument to me that people are like, you're taking it away. Like 
I don't know. I found, did you see that on social media? I found that argument to be the weirdest argument of all. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I too sit in, you know, the middle is where maybe I've been working with somebody for two years and we just haven't seen those improvements or any weight release. Why would this not be a tool? I've also seen it where, you know, they've been on the medication for an extended amount of time and nothing has happened. And of course, the whole idea around like, oh, you know, this medication is never going to reach a point where there's going to be tolerance. We just know in the history of all medications, every medication has tolerance. So I don't understand that aspect of it. But if it is improving someone's life, why is that not a good thing? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it. And why would you shame someone for doing something? Like, I think to understand the the pain of living in a larger body that's chronically sick is it's like, you're really talking about, you're talking about real human beings. We're not talking about like a study about Ozempic. You're talking about actual human beings who are having an altered life experience because of some level of illness. And I'm not saying that obesity is driving every illness. I'm not a believer in that. Again, middle ground on that too. But why would we take any tool away that we possibly have? And we might need new tools. We might always need new tools because I don't see the food system changing anytime soon. And I don't see pharmaceutical companies changing anytime soon either. I have one last question and it is mindful eating. It's such an important tool for all of our clients, but in this world that we live in, it's full of noise. It's like, I don't have enough time to sit down and eat with my food. We know we can't tune in to our hunger and fullness signals unless we spend that time with our food, you know, that interceptive awareness. How do you work with clients to, you know, work towards being able to prioritize that in their lives and help them understand that our hunger and fullness cues really can lead to a better relationship with food if we allow that to happen? I love that. Yeah. So I had an episode on binge eating with a somatic eating counselor named Stephanie Mara Fox. And she had a quote and she said, somatic eating is the step before intuitive eating. So the reason for that, when I say somatic eating, it means right. somatic, we all, your audience definitely knows, but of the body, right? Something related to the physicality of eating. And what most people don't realize is that what drives them to binge eat or drives them to overeat is, again, these voices is one piece or nervous system dysregulation. Nothing is more unpleasant than sitting in the discomfort of nervous system dysregulation. So it's funny, you know, this is why many people say, I, I, I'm a bad meditator and I hate meditating. The goal, and again, this is within your guys' realm, so I'm sure you've talked about this already, but the goal of meditation is not to quiet our thoughts, it's to allow and tolerate what comes up, right? That's the goal of it. The only way out is through, we say, right? So when it comes to binge eating or trying to reduce our kind of impulse eating versus conscious or mindful eating, as you would say, I think the first step is tapping into your body, but that's really, really, really uncomfortable for many people. So you don't have to stay there for too long. So I would say just like even looking at your food and connecting your food to your body, what does my body feel like? How did this food that's in front of my face get here? Like what farmer in what country made this food? Like how did this food, like this exact food that creates life force that is going to literally keep me alive? How did this exact piece of food make it here in this spiritual divine way? Like it, and food has traveled very far away to get to us now too, which is, it's just unbelievable that we could end up with it. I think that's something to just get really excited about for people and then tap into my body. How's my digestion feeling? When you're doing that tap in, how's my heart feeling? How how are my shoulders feeling? 
if it feels overwhelming, you can actually leave and just shake it out. I've said just, oof, that was a lot. That was a lot. I think the mistake a lot of us make with mindful eating is it becomes a very torturous experience because we're living in that nervous system. We're in a, we're in that sympathetic nervous system state. We're overstimulated. We're already uncomfortable. And then we force ourselves to stay there. Don't force yourself to stay there. Sit there for a second. Say, I hated that. Get up, shake it out, switch kind of your field of vision legitimately, and then come back to it when you can. But know that every time you do sit in the discomfort of it and you listen to what your body asks you to do, you just taught your nervous system a new trick. And you taught your nervous system that food time is an important time to calm down. And our body actually can't properly digest food in that sympathetic nervous system state. It's We call it like the kind of wired and tired kind of state when it's overwhelmingly abundant. And then our parasympathetic state is our rest and digest state. So we can't actually digest food well. How we would get there would be to tap in with ourselves, do a little breathing, do these mindful eating tactics. But again, this is the missing piece for many people is if it gets overwhelming, step out of it. You did your job. That's it. Oh, now your body's asking you to do something else. Tap in as much as you can. And if it's too much, leave shake it out. I literally just have my client shake your right arm five times, your left arm five times, your left leg five times, your right leg five times. Say, okay, I did that. And make then eating a really exciting experience by exploring and being curious about the food that's in front of you and what this food's going to do when it goes inside of you, which just gives you literal life. Crazy. Just gives us life. Such a great answer. And I think, you know, the, the people who work with us individually and in groups here very similar messaging from us, but it's really great for, for the listeners of the wider podcast to get to hear that too. So Clarissa lied a little bit. We have one last question before we let you go. <laughs> it's our, our signature question, right? I know it's our signature question. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food and body, what would that be? I, I was thinking about this all morning and now I have new answers. Oh my gosh. I would just like if, and I would implore anyone else to do this too. Just, just say like, this is so corny, but I would just be like, love is the answer. You know, I would just be like the more that you put love out and put love in then the kind of answers to what you need food wise, the answers to what you need health wise become just really obvious because I, I don't actually think many of us suffer from an education deficiency. I think most, most of us suffer from self-trust deficiencies and disintegration of our mind and body. So I would say like, it's like, I'm thinking of the John Lennon song, but I feel like love is, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan. My foot actually says love is all you need. Um, And my sister's foot says all you need is love. We got tattoos together on our 18th, 24th birthdays. So cute, right? I know, so cute. Love her. Um, She's my best friend. But I think that that is the, the closer you get to being compassionate with yourself and others, the closer you're going to get to a lot of the food and health answers that you need. Oh, I love that answer. And and I would agree with you. It's not an education or information problem. I think we, we have a lot of settle with too much of that, right? Exactly. So where can our listeners find you? And like, what are you working on right now? Yes. Other than so, the podcast. The podcast. Yes. Please listen to Quiet the Diet podcast. It was such a joy making it. And, and really the goal of that podcast is also to quiet a lot of these myths that we hear around dieting both from the anti-diet culture side and the diet culture side, both sides of it, and also bring in some really healing functional nutrition information for people too. I have a private practice where I work one-on-one with clients. Right now, I have a lot more open spots in my new staff dietitian. She's filling up, but we still have spots in her practice. Nikki is really focused on supporting people from a functional nutrition perspective. And right now, binge eating is a huge focus of hers, as well as constipation and gut issues. And where kind of Nikki has come in is because she's had experience working from an eating disorder perspective. 
And she found the gap kind of in that eating disorder world was that people didn't understand that there was limitations from a gut perspective. So if there was a client who said, you know, oh, I can't tolerate gluten in an eating disorder facility, they were saying you have to consume it. And so that's where Nikki can really come in and that sweet spot of where can we, you know, invite more safety and at the same time, honor what the body's asking from a physical plane to support. So you can actually, I'll give you the link to schedule a free 15 minute discovery call with Nikki. I work with much just, I take about one new client a month maximum usually because I have the same clients for a long time. And I work with in a really long time span with clients, like four to five years sometimes, because again, we'll come for weight loss, but then we find out, oh, there's a lot going on under the hood. So, but I do take about one new client a month generally. And then Nikki can take other clients too. And then you can just find me on Instagram doing the same level of ranting that I do on my podcast or just with shorter form on Instagram also. And we're definitely always coming up with new projects and new exciting things. So, and I am just so honored you guys had me on today and it was an obvious joy to talk with both of your brilliant and empathetic selves. Well, Michelle, I think we're going to have to have you back. So okay. this okay. is just the beginning <laughs> yes. relationship. Okay. Thank you so much for being here today with us. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.